Welcome back to Elder Sight, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about the Borges story, Tlon, Ukbar, Orbis Tertius. This was published in 1941. We read it in the volume Collected Fictions, published by Penguin Classics. This, uh, this edition of the book was translated by Andrew Hurley. This episode represents our final installment in our coverage of Borges uh, this year for Elder Sign, our Borges theme. Remember, we had two occult detectives was our genre theme, and then we did an author theme, I guess is the word we're using. Uh, and that was that was Borges. And this is the, the last Borges story we're doing for the year. And it's a doozy. Uh, I mean, Glenn, we were just talking off mic about how big this story really is. And I don't know, kind of the mental space we're, we're using to cover it in. We're going to look at it as a story. We're going to talk a lot about the philosophy represented in here because it is, it is kind of a bit of a philosophical story or a piece of philosophical fiction. But there's a lot of cool other stuff that Borges is up to besides just, I don't know, telling us about um, idealism or radical nominalism. This is a great yarn and a great book detective story as well. So we'll have a lot to talk about. Uh, apart from Glenn getting us through the recap and getting us through is even the wrong phrase because this is a great yarn, as I said. So why don't we just shut me up and <laughs> and let you get us into the story, Glenn? <laughs> <laughs> well, right. As you said, this is the last of the Borges stories that we're going to cover for this series. And we are really at the end of the year here. So we are shortly going to be doing our year in review show where we will pick our favorites uh, from these themes, uh, among other things that we'll do to talk about them. It's kind of the the point. But uh, at any rate, what I'm trying to say is that this is probably a pretty strong contender for me for the, the favorite of the Borges stories that we read this year. But let's uh, begin at the beginning, I guess. And so in the introduction to the short story collection, The Garden of Forking Paths, Borges describes this story as a collection of notes on some imaginary books. And that is certainly true, but there is a narrative here as well, a yarn, as Brandon has been saying. <laughs> and that story, that yarn, is about Borges's own involvement with these imaginary books. We might also say imaginary places, because that's really what the title is referring to. Borges begins with Ukbar, and so we're going to do that too. Ukbar is a land that is located around the upper Tigris River in the Near East, and it has a rich history. Now, of course, you have never heard of its rich history, and you have never heard of this place at all, because it has never existed. And that is true in the world of this story as well. And here's the deal. Borges first encountered Ukbar when his friend Bioy Casares, the Argentinian novelist, mentioned the place to him. And when Borges wanted to know more about Ukbar, they together went to the source from which Bjorn Casares himself had learned of it, which is the Anglo-American Cyclopedia, which is apparently an Argentinian plagiarism of the 1902 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. But the thing is, the entry on Ukbar appears only in the copy of this uh, Anglo-American cyclopedia that Bioy Casares owns. It's not in any other copy that they look at. 
But there is a bibliography in this entry, and, and it has four items in it. And the one that stands out is by Johannes Valentinus Andrea, who also made up the Rosicrucians before someone decided to actually found the society. Moreover, this four-page encyclopedia entry describes the literature of Ukbar as utterly fantastical. Ukbari only tells stories about two made-up places of their own, or two places that they have made up. These are Mleknas and Tlan. And, uh, of course, right, one of those is in the title of the story, so that's where we're going to be going next. But this is really the point where we should pause and uh, let this opening, really big opening, digest a little bit. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of literary feast that does require digesting or Maybe it requires unpacking. I don't know. Somewhere in between, there's a right metaphor for what we need to do for what <laughs> for what Borges is up to in this story. Uh, I want to say at the top of the show, I don't know. I was I was debating whether or not to mention this. There's a British detective series called Inspector Lewis. It's just called Lewis, really. Uh, but there's that's too common of a name to really search for. And uh, there is an episode in which the clues to the uh, detectives unraveling the case involve this story. Also, I'm pretty sure that someone was crushed to death with a mirror. That's going to come up in just a moment. In any way, I love Lewis. You should watch the show. Also Endeavor. Also Inspector Morse. Don't get me started on it. Let's move on. The, f- <laughs> the first thing I really want to I want to do here, you know, uh, I don't know, is is unpacking, I guess, is what I want to do first before we begin to chew on some of the details of this section. So I want to point this out. Bioy Caceres is real. He's a real novelist. He was a very close friend of Borges's. They were they were really uh, good buddies and chums. And in this story uh, that Borges is telling, they're getting together for a dinner, I guess, in a rented house that is also furnished. They have this colorful conversation, uh, basically about Gene Wolfe novels in in the start of this <laughs> in the start of this uh, story, and then they realize it's late at night. They've been drinking port or whatever. Uh, then they realize that mirrors are kind of spooky, and it's it's this realization, it's this mirror, that is the occasion for Borges's own discovery of Ukbar, because Caceres quotes from the encyclopedia entry about Ukbar kind of extemporaneously and from memory. And he says that, uh, you know, from memory, this quote is that mirrors and copulation are abominable for they multiply the number of mankind. So we get this kind of antinatalist view up front that that uh, Kisares remembers as being something that one of the Hesiarchs of Ukbar has said. Now, as I said, this quote is something that Kassara states from memory, and he's gotten it wrong a little bit, because the real quote from the encyclopedia is this. For one of the Gnostics, the visible universe was an illusion, or more precisely, a sophism. Mirrors and fatherhood are hateful because they multiply and proclaim it. Uh, So what we're seeing here is this kind of almost um, neoplatonic viewpoint that Ukbari is rooted in, where the universe is illusory, there's something real behind it to get to, and 
the things that multiply the illusion are wrong. This might be even something from the from the pseudo platonic dialogue ion, in which there's like a chain of reality, and the lower on the chain you go, the the more evil it is. I don't really have too much more to say about here. Maybe I can just pause. Uh, but um, I don't know. For context, maybe before we pause this this discovery of an imaginary land that is, you know, we'll learn a forged entry in a plagiarized and outdated encyclopedia is a question, you know, what lies at the heart of this is really a question about the nature of things that are reflected back to us both in mirrors, but also in something like literature itself. It's like in through language, right? We are being asked in this opening to question just how it is we know what we know when it seems to be the case that our knowledge uh, is mediated both by authoritative sources, right? So we get knowledge through something we trust as an authority, a la an encyclopedia, but also through the filter of our own perspectives, a la the placement of a mirror and what we can see by its reflection. Um, and then it's this latter point, I think that requires some real thoughtful mastication here. <laughs> Um, you know, where does this kind of general knowledge come from? How can it be trusted? Glenn, I, there's more to say here, obviously, but maybe I'll just pause and let you let you um, chew my own ear off for a moment here on, on what I've been saying. Well, first of all, I, I can't believe you didn't tell me, you know, off mic weeks ago as we were starting to get ready for this episode <laughs> that there was an Inspector Lewis episode about this story. I have not watched any of these three shows that you have just mentioned, but you talk to me about them all the time. And uh, <laughs> this is probably what would have gotten me to, to watch this like two weeks ago when I had uh, uh, some solitude and some time on my hands. And uh, I don't know, I would really enjoy if we actually had a chance to cover that as a bonus, uh, you know, maybe on Patreon someday. I mean, there's no room on our schedule until like 2026 for that to happen, but you know, <laughs> nonetheless, we can dream. Something that you have brought into it that I had left out of the the recap because this is such a big story, right? You've brought the real vivacity uh, of this scene, right? Of these two friends at at night, you know, enjoying some drinks and having a kind of wide ranging conversation about, yeah, more or less Gene Wolfe novels, right? Is a really beautiful scene. And it is also everything that I ever dreamed life as an adult was going to be like when I was a kid, right? That you were going to hang out with your friends, have really sophisticated conversations about literature, and then also find an actual book mystery that you have to solve together, right? I mean, this is what I was promised being an adult was going to be when I was a kid. <laughs> it has turned out to be nothing like that. It's mostly just grocery shopping and doing your taxes. It's actually pretty terrible, right? But we were promised that this is what it was going to be like. And just what... What a world. What a fantastical, amazing world to to be in here. I love the way Borges just envisions, right, what life is like or what life ought to be like. Absolutely. I mean, I think really part of the charm of this story, I read dozens and dozens of academic papers about this story to try to uh, both kind of sharpen my own views on it, but also find some nice inroads for conversation and almost none of them really emphasize the joy that is found in reading a story like this that does highlight the 
the excitement of finding a book mystery? You know, what would cause one edition or one volume of a plagiarized encyclopedia to have an extra four pages. I mean, this is like a deep mystery of reality, right? And this is a big part of this story as well. Like as we see in this invention of the Rosicrucian society that you pointed out, Glenn, like Borges is asking this question, what role does our imagination, and maybe we could even say like false or misleading beliefs in a purely empirical and rational sense, right? What do these things have? What do our mental states, whether they're, true in a sense that corresponds to reality or not? What sense do these things play in our own ability to shape and generate material reality? And I think what you're pointing out here with this kind of like view of childhood on adulthood is that imagination is all. And what happens when our magic imagination snags on something real in reality and we have to dig into it. And 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 this is something we'll be looking at more closely in the story. Uh, but, you know, it's here in the first chapter, the sense of what if our, our own purely imaginative inventions do create something in a material sense. And so, yeah, it, not only do we have that, which is the core of childhood play, we have the sharing of that with friends, which is also kind of the, the 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 core of of play but then there's also tons of real re sophisticated researching in libraries tracking down sources doing you know some general book detective work here as well and yeah this is what i was promised too this is what scholarship was supposed to be like hanging out with friends knocking back the booze of your choice getting frightened of mirrors and doing book detective stuff <laughs> like this is all this is everything i want in a story uh, and it's all right here and it's great. Um, and, and then there's also this problem that we have, you and I, Glenn, here, uh, our job today, figuring out just what the hell all of this actually means. So yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. In fact, we should probably move on at this point to Tlon, which is, I would say, the main course of this story. If we're going to continue with our uh, meal and digestion <laughs> metaphor here, and uh, I say, let's go ahead and do it. So Borges's narrative picks up two years later when he inherits a book from a family friend who has recently died. In fact, I mean, like, died very recently, just a, a few days after himself taking delivery of this book. And the book is volume 11 of A First Encyclopedia of Tlon, which covers Lair to Younger. Now, of course, Borges recognizes the name Tlon from the mysterious article on Ukbar, and this is super exciting, right, to, to make this discovery. And in fact, here is what Borges says about it. I now held in my hands a vast and systematic fragment of the entire history of an unknown planet, with its architectures and its playing cards, the horror of its mythologies and the murmur of its tongues, its emperors and its seas, its minerals and its birds and fishes, its algebra and its fire, its theological and metaphysical controversies, all joined, articulated, coherent, and with no visible doctrinal purpose or hint of parody." So at this point, there are two stories that Borges is telling. I'm going to focus first on the account of Tlon, and then we can take up the mystery of who wrote all of this <laughs> stuff that he's finding. And Borges alludes to the fact that the general public is now well aware of Tlon, and he says that while he understands that people are interested in things like 
Transparent Tigers and Towers of Blood. He is going to skip all that and tell us about the Tlonian conception of the universe. And so what I can say here is buckle up for some imaginary intellectual history. (laughs) A third metaphor, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just metaphors all the way down. Uh, well, all right. Let's uh, let's let's start with language. The languages of Tlon are idealist rather than materialist. In the southern part of the planet, what that means is that they have no nouns, just verbs and adverbs. The example that Borges gives is that they have no word for moon, even if there is, in fact, a moon. Rather, they have a verb that means enmooned. And so if you want to say, the moon rose above the river, you would actually construct it this way. Upward, behind the on-streaming, it mooned. In the northern part of the planet, they just use adjectives. And so moon is aerial bright above dark round, or soft amberish celestial. As difficult as these languages are for us to really comprehend, right, a worldview that just is beyond us— There is, nonetheless, a literature in these languages. But in Tlonian cultures, all books are deemed the work of a single author who is timeless and anonymous. And the books that they write are very different than ours as well. Fiction has a single plot with every imaginable permutation. Philosophy is a collection of pros and cons for every argument. Observational science does not exist in this culture, but geometry and arithmetic do. But of course, they are founded on absurd principles, such as indefinite numbers. Finally, and this has been going on for several pages here that I am summarizing, I will say, but finally, Borges tells us that psychology is the central discipline of Tlonian culture because the people of this planet conceive of the universe as a series of mental processes that occur not in space, but rather occur successively in time. And This, of course, has a huge impact on philosophical inquiry as well, which Borges gives us Well, a ton. He gives us a ton on this, but uh, I'm going to let Brandon tell you about that. Yeah. First, I'll say I hope that if you're listening to this episode, it's because you've you've read this story or you'll pause here and read it. And I say that because, you know, Glenn is doing an excellent job of giving us, you know, the the yarn of the story, the gist of the story here, as I pointed out. But there is so much richness in details. in the details of Borges' telling. You know, this the story is one that just gives you a lot to think about, especially with regard to these philosophical concepts that that you've mentioned, Glenn, uh, that are behind Tlon as a as a place. And um let's just let's just dig into that here to give us a sense of an analog to the kinds of philosophy done on Tlon. Borges mentions a bunch of philosophers in this section of the story. There's mention of Leibniz and Hume and Berkeley, and these are all late 17th and early 18th century philosophers and you know mathematicians and theologians and scientists uh, who were all caught up with questions about causality, questions of what the stuff of the universe is made of. And questions about how we organize and categorize our sense experiences into things we might call information or really knowledge. Um, and, and now it's Barclay, really, who is the hero of this tale. I've talked about him a lot on the podcast before, but I'll give just another brief little intro to him 
Now he was an Anglican bishop. He was a broad thinker or philosopher. Whose system of thought falls under the larger category of idealism, uh, but which I think it would be more helpful to, to consider as radical nominalism. Uh, and this is because Borges was influenced a lot by Barclay's radical no nominalism through the lens of this other philosopher named um, Frederick Mothner, who I know very little about and have only encountered in uh, these articles that that are talking about this story, but since Borges, within the confines of the text of this story, talks about Barclay, that's who I'm going to uh, continue to use as a reference point. And also, you know, just for reference here, I'll also point out that materialism, to give some definitions around that, is the philosophical umbrella that holds beneath it the view that everything is built out of matter including our minds and you know our minds then and what they are ex and what they experience are byproducts of the way matter is charged with electrical synapses or something like that they're really functions of the way matter interacts with itself as a substance don't quote me on this. Don't ask me to go deeper. You know, leave me alone. Whatever. This is where we're at with this story today. Now, idealism, on the other hand, more or less holds that materiality is mind dependent. In other words, we might consider the question of the tree falling in the forest and whether or not it makes a sound, you know, and whether or not it makes a sound if if anyone is around or not around to hear it. At the end of the story, we get questions of like, you know, an amphitheater existing because a horse witnesses its materiality. This is all caught up in Barclay and philosophy. And Barclay might not be very interested in whether or not this proverbial tree has made a sound if no one can hear it. But instead, and more interestingly, I think, Barclay might question whether or not the tree fell at all if no one was around to witness it. You know, he's asking the questions of in what intelligible way can we even state what has happened to this tree, not only in this hypothetical case, but if we have no access to its causal history whatsoever as witnessing it, we can only make suppositions about the tree having fallen. So the point I'm making is this. Barclay's idealism holds that there is a universal mind. Barclay was a bishop. He'll say God is the universal mind that holds all things together through something like total and complete observation of reality. This is part of the goodness of God. Uh, Mothner, I think, was a, a secularist and does not hold this view, but still holds really closely to radical not nominalism. You know, causality, that is the notion of cause and effect, uh, preceding causes, antecedent effects, doesn't necessarily need to be the case at all for this kind of radical nominalism to hold true. The forest just might be arranged in a particular way when we come across it. And we might come across then a moss covered tree that's laying on its side and the, the bird song of a warbler. We might feel the cool breeze that alerts us to the sweat on our brow. And this might all happen instantaneously. 
And isn't this just all caught up in our experience of the moment? And here's where we have the idealism of the Tolonians kind of come into play. They're interested in this mental state of the moment, not deep categorization and differentiation of each thing. It's only through our approach to objects that we differentiate these experiences into these categories of things rather than apprehending them as one moment in our mind. And so radical nominalism under this form of idealism would allow us to see you know, that this full moment was nameable in itself, though some of the Tolonians even resist naming, um, that, this, that this experience is its own experience and can be conceived of as such, including the whole thing, the witnessing of the tree already on its side, the bird song, the sweat in our brow, the breeze, etc. So I am making a little bit of a hash of this in order to try to clarify what Borges is doing with the language in the story regarding Talon. Um, but I think my point here can stand well. Causality can be separate from experience given a certain cast of mind. And here's where I'll stop to let you jump in, Glenn. And then I have just some really brief things that I want to point out uh, that will be fun to consider for our discussion. Right. Maybe in a a nutshell, something to say is simply that Borges is presenting us with a a fantasy land, and maybe we might think of it as a science fiction place, I guess, because it's on another planet. But in any case, an imaginary place with an imaginary culture and also other imaginary attributes all of which are vastly different from our own experiences. And that's really the thought exercise here, the thought experiment here, is to envision people whose basic premise about what the universe is and its rules, how it operates, are fundamentally different from ours, and then build out from there and see what that culture would look like. Although it's maybe not quite as simple as that, right? Because Borges is then also, because Borges is then also stacking on top of that all sorts of other differences that maybe don't necessarily grow out of this, this primary difference. But at any rate, in a nutshell, that's the exercise that he's doing here. And it's pretty, it's pretty bonkers, right? Because these premises that the Tlonians accept as foundational really stand in contradiction to not just our own experience of the universe, but our experience of, well, experience at all, right? And just our thought processes. It is so vastly different. It's a fun experiment, but it is also mind-boggling and dizzying. Yeah, that's right. It is my it is mind boggling, and it it is uh, the more you read about radical nominalism and philosophical idealism um, in this sense. Uh, I don't know. At least to me, the more attractive it becomes, and but you kind of have to live as if that might be the case instead of um, um, I don't know encountering everything as, as as this kind of like categorizable object and and so on. Barclay's great. I can't over recommend him enough. I recommend him a lot. Um, but you know, his collected works, um, are, are very brief. He, he didn't write a ton in terms of philosophy, uh, but the stuff he wrote was really, really impactful and thoughtful and is, you know, always on the edge of making a comeback, I guess. All right, let's return to the story though. I want to point out one more thing that the Tolonians have that we do not, um, though they are making an incursion in our reality, and that is the existence of Fronir. 
And these are essentially mind-dependent artifacts that exist solely because the person seeking them out has also successfully imagined them into existence based on the expectation that the Hronir will exist as an artifact or object. This does not make them unreal, but their correspondence to reality or how they make up reality is something we will have to think about in our discussion. Hronir are one of the coolest inventions I think any writer has come up with. And um, Borges has, I guess, the, 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 the right cast of mind to have envisioned them as an outcropping of idealism. And so this is kind of taking idealism to its real extreme in a philosophical sense. You know, it's kind of turning language into an object or thought into an object, uh, a material object. Um, but yeah, there's more to get through before we, before we dive into that. Yeah, there is. I think we might end up talking about Gene Wolfe a little bit more when we uh, dig into that in the discussion. But before I, I move us on to the next part of the book, I do just want to say the same thing that I say every time you bring up Barkley on the air, which is just to say that the name is not spelled the way it is pronounced. It is spelled like <laughs> Berkeley, like uh, the city like in, the in California. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Right. Just in, in case someone wants to look Berkeley up and uh, read more about him. And of course, like every great philosopher, there are, in fact, more words about him than words by him as you were uh, saying before. But, uh, all right, let's go talk about the investigation into this book that Borges has inherited, this book that he now has in his possession. We don't get very much on that here, but it is going to take us into the third part of this story. There is no date or place of publication you know, printed anywhere in or on the book, but there is a stamp with the inscription Orbis Tertius, or Third Orb, uh, third planet, if you will. And while Borges knows that the book is fictional, or we might even say that this book is a hoax, right? It nonetheless claims to be part of a series of volumes in this encyclopedia. And there are references to earlier and later volumes in here. And finally, Borges writes a little bit about the scholarly debate about whether or not these other volumes really exist. None of them have been found. We should be clear about that. But Borges believes that they do exist, and he presents that as the majority opinion among scholars. So, obviously, what we can infer here is that Borges has published this encyclopedia and even founded a field of study about it. And I have to say that that is the dream. That is really the dream. Yeah, it really is. And 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 what you're stating here must be the case, though I have hardly considered this inference you've made regarding, you know, this, this the volume 11 of the Tlonian encyclopedia, uh, I, I, it just never crossed my mind when reading the story. And it's, it's brilliant, uh, to make that inference that Borges is both kind of the perpetrator of this, um, I don't know, academic, it's not a hoax. It's not a crime, but he's like, he's thrusting this upon the world and then we'll see him kind of be a victim of it as well. But as with so much of Borges, there's also this joke in this bit about philosophy as well, about the possibility of being able to reason from first facts or even available facts. This this whole bit here about being able to generate all sorts of information about Tlan based on references is pretty amazing. You know, like, okay, from knowing that this word here in this encyclopedia is referencing another entry, we know that entry 
exists. Maybe we can generate that entry based on what we know from just this slim encyclopedic volume, you know, about this planet. But also, when we take into account the existence of Fronier, it might be entirely possible to to then generate these these encyclopedias, you know? Fronier can maybe be thought of as the physical manifestation of this kind of academic speculation anyway. It's it's certainly presented to us in this story that Fronier primarily exist to aid, say, archaeologists in seeking artifacts from a tomb or something along those lines. And so, I don't know, maybe I'll just pause here because there's a little more to go in the story itself. Right. The last part of this story is actually called a postscript, and it is dated 1947. And the deal is that everything that we've just covered so far is from an article that Borges published in the Anthology of Fantastic Literature in 1940. But in the last seven years, a lot has happened, and he wants to bring us up to speed. In 1941, a letter was discovered that details the origin of the hoax about Sloan and Akbar. This hoax began in the early 17th century when a secret benevolent society decided that its mission should be to invent a country. And this went on across generations. But then, in 1824, a wealthy American weirdo suggested that inventing a country was too modest, that what they needed to do was invent an entire planet. It was also this dude's idea to write an encyclopedia, and when he died, he left his fortune to this secret society, but he left it to them on the condition that they do exactly that, that they write this encyclopedia. And so, in 1914, the 40 volumes were complete, they were printed at least 300 times, which is to say, one for each member of the society, and finally... In 1944, an investigative journalist found a complete set of this encyclopedia in a library in Memphis, Tennessee. And since then, material objects from Tlon have been found and have even been circulating pretty widely. Ultimately, the way all of this has been presented to people by the press and in pop culture has really failed to explain to people that this is a hoax, or at least failed to convince people that this is a hoax. And so now, at this point, in 1947, people everywhere think Tlone is real, and Tlonean subjects are even now being taught in schools, and Tlonean culture is impacting the way that scholars and scientists are going about their work. And Borges predicts that even though the secret society invented Tlon, people now are making Tlon a reality. And soon, Earth will cease being Earth and will simply become Tlon. And that is the note on which this story ends. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Uh, let me add one more academic concept onto this heap here before we get into our discussion. You might be wondering at the end of the story just how it could be that a change in our linguistic approach to reality, which is, you know, what we kind of focus on about Tlon, might influence the nature of reality itself, right? Like whether things are the case the way we think of them. And this question isn't just present here at the end of Tlon, Ukbar, Orbis Tertius, uh, it's also the key concept of a film of the film Arrival, based on Ted Chang's wondrous story, "The Story of Your Life and Others." 
And at the root of this concept is uh, research done by Benjamin Worf, uh, especially um, his research with the Hopi people. More broadly speaking, though, this kind of, well, it's called linguistic relativism, has been called the Sapir-Worf hypothesis. And in its strongest version, uh, in the strong form of this argument, this hypothesis uh, states that the language we use and use to think even can determine the shape of our reality. So that, as in arrival, being taught the alien language actually causes you to experience time in a different way. Uh, this is something that was explicitly explored within the, the Hopi culture. But more fundamentally, what this hypothesis is getting at is that language can determine our, our subjective experiences of reality, which is true, but it just can't actually shape reality. So the, the weaker form of this argument or hypothesis has does have, have um, does have some empirical backing to it. The strong form is uh, bunk, but it's a favorite of science fiction writers to play with. Um, and maybe we should talk about reality at some point, but... In any event, many readers of Borges and critics of him have emphasized the importance of Worf's research into the, the Hopi language and the way that that has paralleled this story. The criticism is out there. I just don't think we'll be diving too deeply into it, but I think I'd be remiss if I didn't um, add this concept into the tool set that we're providing with readers to do their own type of, of criticism or thought about this story. And languages are my jam. This is what my degrees are in, classical languages. I love learning new languages, especially kind of bizarre languages, or at least languages that seem bizarre from, you know, an Anglo perspective. And I have talked about the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis uh, actually quite a bit on ATAS. One episode in particular I'll point people to if they want to hear more about that is Jack Vance's take on this in a novel that he wrote called The Languages of Pow. That's a book I actually really like. That's probably my favorite Jack Vance thing I've I've ever read. And uh, yeah, Sapper Wharf was a big part of my episode there. So you can go check that out if you want to hear more about that. And speaking of checking things out, we should say that today is Halloween. And that means that in addition to this regularly scheduled Elder Sign episode, you get a bonus Halloween episode. Or at least you do if you're with us on Patreon. This year, Brandon and I covered Peter Straub's well, masterpiece, really epic masterpiece novel, Ghost Story. This is one of our favorite novels of all time. It is perfect for Halloween. So we also hope that you'll uh, check that out if you aren't already with us on Patreon. But all right, there is a lot to do here with this story, Brandon. So let's go get into the discussion. I don't know where a person would begin to discuss this. And so I'm glad it is your job to decide where we are going to start. Yeah, this was not an easy, not an easy job. I I, I think I want to start uh, with something that we haven't brought up at all, uh, really. Uh, certainly have not focused on it throughout the recap, um, but which seems to me to be something of a contemporary concern now. Uh, once again, I'm going to make a hash of of this uh, concept I'm about to present, and hopefully, Glenn, you'll be able to distill it and say something intelligent about it. But what I'm thinking about really what this story brought up to me um, is the nature of information, of how information is generated, how it's archived and stored, and really how it can be erased 
really easily, how we can lose information and maybe lose knowledge as well, or ways of thinking. This is, um, I don't know, a, a big concept in a lot of uh, postmodern philosophy, episto- epistemology and so forth. Foucault talks about this, I guess. But Talon Ukbar Orbis Tertius is in part an exploration of the nature of information and how information becomes knowledge and then how knowledge supplants old information and sometimes making that old knowledge or information irrecoverable. And there's this sense in this story of some kind of old way of thinking or understanding being rewritten. Um, That is that the way we reflect the world back to ourselves through collective understanding and language is going to change to the degree that maybe we won't get this old empirical, rational way of thinking back. And since in this story, this is all caught up in encyclopedias, this really got me thinking about the digital world that we live in now and digital information, something like Wikipedia, which is full of references and hyperlinks that connect a certain bit of information to a digital source, rather than what we see in this story where Borges has four References in a bibliography, he gets to go to libraries, he goes far and wide, he tells his friends about this weird reference to Ukbar, they look around for him, they look in other plagiarized encyclopedia sets they come across, Um, and, and just this whole sense of materiality versus bits, maybe. But even these plagiarized versions of these encyclopedias are thought to be reliable enough. There's still enough authority behind the printing of them that people trust their information uh, that they get from these uh, plagiarized encyclopedias that Borges is talking about. I guess what I'm getting at is this, you know, what kind of concerns, Glenn, are worth considering And this is, I'm asking you as a historian here, regarding the erasure of information that we can't recover, especially information as it's tied to old ways of knowing. Like, what's the value of keeping outdated information in an archive? And should it be erased? Should it be archived in an easily accessible way? You know, what recourse do we have if our reality gets overwritten by something like new code? Right. This is an attitude that I find my students have all the time, this idea that really just now is what matters and and also maybe the future is what matters and that not just like the past in the sort of historical sense doesn't matter, but that our previous conceptions, our previous understandings or our previous bodies of knowledge don't matter, right? That if... uh, we have a different idea about, say, this or that historical event or episode or period, or even just a different idea about, say, how many planets are in the solar system than people did 30 years ago. What is the point in keeping around books that talk about Pluto as a planet, right? There's no need for those if we have better, more up-to-date information. And this is an attitude that my students have, I think, in part, I'm not sure you know, what the ratios are here, but maybe equal parts uh, because they're young, <laughs> right? Which you and I vaguely <laughs> remember being at some point. But also, I think because they grew up in this digital age. These are the, the digital natives. This is the first round of digital natives, right, that I'm teaching now, who have grown up in a world in which not just information, but whole bodies of knowledge are 
dis, are disposable and Im, imminently are disposable and infinitely replaceable and should just be discarded when they're done because they're I think metaphor for even thinking about knowledge is bits rather than pages, as you as you suggested, Brandon. Right, that they are thinking about their the the way their metaphor for the way that knowledge is organized and disseminated is digital rather than physical. I find this, I think, both as a historian and just generally as a middle aged person, I find this alarming. Right, I find this incredibly alarming. And of course, you know this as someone who works with me on all of these uh, projects that we do. <laughs> that I keep every version of every document ever, and every version of our files, our audio files, the, the you know what we recorded, and then I have you know halfway through editing it, then I have the files that are what we edited, then the files of the production values put on it, and so on. I've never gone back to use a single one of those for any purpose, but they're going to be on hard drives until the day that I die, right? And that's just (laughs) my approach, right, as a kind of middle-aged person and as a historian is to keep everything, right? Because we don't know if it might come back to matter, come back to have some use someday, or just come back to be interesting in some way. And just as an example of where this is just maybe something that's interesting and not necessarily of broad, uh, world-changing use or applicability, is that Tolkien also kept everything, everything he ever jotted down, everything he ever wrote, any idea he ever sketched out in, you know, terrible shorthand on a napkin, he kept in a file somewhere. And his son Christopher made an entire life out of going through all of that and trying to catalog it, trying to put it together. And it lets us as readers, as fans of, say, you know, just principally perhaps the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, to see every possible version of that, you know, sentence changes, word changes. I mean, there are four kind of big iterations of the Lord of the Rings, but we can track all of that. And that's just super fun. I'm so glad that Tolkien, uh, you know, shared this, this with me, right? Shared this, uh, uh, this intellectual hoarding tendency with me. And it's, I think it's pretty clear that Borges shares this tendency as well. I think there's no doubt in my mind that Borges, uh, shares this kind of view about, Knowledge. I mean, there's no sense in this story really that um, the archive will go away. But I think, I think there there is this sense today that the archive will will disappear. I mean, you can go back and look at the edit history of Wikipedia um, if you really want to. And you know, we know there's only really a handful of people doing the majority of the work there. Um, but that's constantly being updated, and we have this trust in in new information and and it, it, something like you know the paradigms shift that that are inherent in scientific revolutions right where it's it takes time to overcome the old authorities um that we that there's this tie to authority and knowledge that that seems to me for for young people today that they that there's not this sense of knowledge being passed down that you have to overcome the old guard in order for something new to be accepted and commonplace it just takes the editing of a file online it takes that kind of simplicity um, an education that is just so different, you know, when you're, I, I don't know, I don't quite know what I'm saying. I know there's a lot here caught up in ideas that I don't want to get bogged down in like authority and knowledge, um, new information 
keeping standards and how education is functioning. But it does seem to me as though these are important topics. And at least part of what this story is about is reality being overwritten as though the the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis is true in its strong form. And um, that's itself is a fascinating concept. Like I said, that's something you can you can look into uh, through through a bunch of science fiction stories. But I just wanted to start there because we didn't get to really talk about it. And it seems to me as though the archive, at least, should always be kept. Uh, I guess that's my moralizing for for this episode. And I will second that motion for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's move on here to the story itself and kind of think about what's going on here on the story level. The next question I want to ask here is whether we think this incursion of Talon into our reality or overlaying our reality is meant to be thought of as a good or an ill. Like, Glenn, did you read this story as Borges' endorsement of something like radical nominalism or maybe investigation into it? Or do you think that he prefers and thinks that the dominant attitude or cast of mind of materialism as a mode of thought, you know, with its full differentiation between each object and each thing, its classifications, its categories, and its abstractions are the good. This is a great question. It is not the question that I thought you were going to ask when you started that sentence. I, and so maybe let me ask the question. Or, so maybe let me answer the question I thought you were going to ask first and then circle back around to that. Because I think something that's implicit in your question is that the tone of this story and, and really the tone of the postscript is such that Borges seems to be concerned about the fact that people all over the planet think that Sloan is real and are starting even to learn Tlonian and that human culture has taken several steps uh, in the journey towards actually becoming Tlonian culture, that, that Borges is concerned about this. I don't know if he's concerned about it because of any kind of issues that he might have with the idealism versus materialism uh, debate here in these foundational philosophical differences between human culture and Tlonian culture. What I sensed was that for him, this is really disturbing because he knows that this is a hoax. And he's really alarmed that most people don't realize this, that in fact, the hoax has been successful. It's the most successful hoax there's ever been. People have been convinced that there is another planet somewhere with this culture and that it is worth studying. And to the extent that our culture is actually now changing, is taking on elements of this. And I think it's the hoax really that disturbs him rather than anything about the the content of the culture. It's simply the hoax of it. I think that does answer my question satisfactorily, even though it's a little sidestepped and, and, and roundabout. But that, I, think, I, I, I think that that is a fair approach to wondering about you know, whether or not Borges is, a, is a, a radical nominalist or an idealist. He is, I think. He's a huge, huge fan of it. Uh, this is something we know. <laughs> but this is actually the final question I have for you, Glenn. Is, uh, it's a big genre question, right? It's about fantasy or science fiction writers, but really fantasy writers, the kind of popular fantasy that's out there today. Brandon Sanderson, maybe Robert Jordan, the kind of the big series that everyone's reading really seem committed to materialism as a point of view, even though there's numinous or spiritual stuff going on there like magic. But why don't we have great 
fantasy worlds with magic where idealism is the foundational concept of the world building. Why is everybody so committed to materialism if they're also playing with magic and things like that? Why don't we have Fronir in, I don't know, the Wheel of Time or something like that? Well, as you know, and I think as listeners know as well, I'm not really hip on what's going on in, in current <laughs> fantasy. You've you've really just invoked two writers I don't know at all. I've never read Robert Jordan, the only Brandon Sanderson I have read. I've read with you. We've done an episode <laughs> together on, on ATAS. Uh, but my sense from lurking around the internet is that a lot of contemporary fantasy or really even just fantasy from this century or this millennium, I guess we might even say, right, Anglo fantasy literature anyway, is really interested in magic as a kind of science and creating magic systems. And that really is a pretty hardcore materialist way of thinking about the numinous, right, is thinking about it as really a type of science or type of technology, right? Really taking that Arthur C. Clarke statement that magic is just a type of technology that's so advanced that we can't understand it, really taking that maxim to to heart, right? And even if they're not thinking about it in terms of like machines and a kind of... Uh, uh, in a kind of Book of the New Sun type of way, still thinking about magic as a type of rational system, a body of knowledge that you can learn, rather than as something that is kind of mystical, which is frequently, I think, how magic appears in 19th and maybe early and mid 20th century fantasy, though that's a, a statement uh, that I won't, that, but that's a hill I won't die on, right? That's really more of a question <laughs> than, a, than a statement I will say. I would love to hear what other people have to uh, to say or what they think about that. But um, yeah, I think, you know, there is an interesting premise to your question here, Brandon, about, you know, why has fantasy literature taken that turn towards a, a hardcore materialist bent in the way that it, it treats magic? You know, when did that start? Why has it come about? And, you know, the historian in me, you know, wants to posit some hypotheses there, but I'm actually lacking the evidence about like when this even begins. So my hypothesis will, uh, you know, be rather meaningless. But I have this general sense that a lot about our culture changed at the turn of the millennium, that the 90s are this kind of liminal time in our culture. I don't know, you know why that why that is, but I imagine that we would find some of the building blocks of this in the 90s and then see it really come to prevalence in the, the aughts. And then now it's just kind of here to stay, at least until we get the next big thing. But what's behind that, I don't know. But I imagine you have some thoughts. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a real question. I think, as we saw in this story, just trying to parse it out, trying to nail down the philosophies and their impacts is just simply too challenging to do as a world building technique. It's so foreign to our minds um, that to do the heavy lifting of world building, which is what most fantasy novels are about anyway, today at least, um, to, to have to do world building and explain a new philosophical system is going to leave a lot of readers in the dust. And so maybe these novels are being written. They're just not publishable because you have to do numbers in the marketplace to, to get published, or at least someone believes that has to be the case. Um, so maybe if you've got the great uh, idealist fantasy novel series and you're looking for a publisher, um, well, I'm sorry. Maybe you're out of luck, but I, I hope you get it through uh, some agents and editing, and at least we can get some of these things out out in the world. That would be great. But um, now that we're imagining uh, a writer doing this labor in the dark, 
We should we should close this episode on the sad note uh, <laughs> and call it a day. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. Yeah, we're we're ending here on a note of inventing our own fantasy novels, like just as a kind of a category of a thing, not actually writing them, <laughs> which I think is definitely in keeping with the spirit of this story. All right. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And we really hope you will join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia so that you can get access to our episode on Peter Straub's ghost story, along with uh, well over 100 other bonus episodes. Next time, we will be back here with our second Seabury Quinn story of the year, The Tenants of Brusac. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.